representative of this committee to report my experience, I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. That is the voice of Anita Hill 30 years ago, testifying in the U.S. Senate confirmation hearings for now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. It was during Hill's testimony that she detailed her accusations of sexual harassment against Thomas when the two worked together in the U.S. Department of Education and later at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It was a moment that forever changed the conversation in America about sexual harassment and gender violence. Now, three decades later, Hill has a new book that explores the through lines between her experiences coming forward in 1991 and what we're seeing today with the Me Too movement and the backlash that women sometimes still face. Her book is called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And Anita Hill joins me now to talk about it. Uh, Anita Hill, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on your program. So first, there might be some people in our audience who don't remember or who weren't old enough to experience what you did and what you went through 30 years ago. So let's start there. How did you decide that you would come forward with your accusations against then-judge Clarence Thomas and talk about what happened, how big a deal that was in 1991? Well, first of all, it's it's good for the public to know that um, I was approached by a staffer on the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee um, and asked if I knew of an, any experience of, of sexual misconduct on the part of the nominee, Clarence Thomas. So that approach then led me to do uh, some investigation as to not only not when I would come forward, uh, but how I would come forward, what the process would be for me to come forward, who I would talk to, how I would give my statement. Um, it, it in in sort of that's just the process. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my thinking, uh, my decision to provide the information. Uh, was based on the fact that I knew that what I had to say was relevant to their consideration, the committee's consideration of the character and fitness of an individual who was being vetted uh, to sit on the country's highest court in a lifetime appointment. Mm. And uh, for those who again, we're not uh, maybe even alive in 1991, uh, but but maybe not paying all of the attention that many of us were. Talk about the, the process and how harrowing it was, the response to the things that you said and revealed in that Senate testimony. Well, I think a lot of people have actually gone back and looked at the process uh, and, and uh, especially after 2018, mm-hmm. uh, when Christine Blasey Ford faced that same Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. Some, some new members, uh, but some of the same old members that had been there 30 years before, or 28 years before when she 
uh, testified. So I, I think the, you know that's a good example of what the process was like. It was harrowing. It was unclear. There were attacks on my credibility. There were attacks on my character, um, and I um, and, and of course there were attacks on on the validity of of my uh, my experience. Whether my experience even really mattered in terms of of uh, a consideration for who should be on the court. So. Um, you know, to put all of that together, uh, you know, I, I actually have written a book about about that experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I think um, think about what happened in 2018, uh, and and uh, in many ways, in terms of the process itself, there wasn't enough difference to uh, to for us to say that 2018 was strikingly different. Uh, from what happened in 1991. Yeah. I, I think the, that many of the members in 1991 were much bolder in uh, denouncing um, the whole concept of sexual harassment as something that was relevant to their consideration. Mm. So in the introduction to your new book, you write, Uh, My goals for this book are as enormous as the problem itself. The issue, the problem, is nothing short of a national crisis. In seeking to change the way we think and talk about gender violence, I run the risk of biting off more than I can chew. But my goal only matches the size of the crisis. Add actually changing what we do about gender-based violence, and I'm sure to be labeled as too ambitious. Um, let's pull the lens 30 years forward and, and talk about what you're saying now and how it relates to 1991 and the things that happened uh, in that Senate hearing room. Immediately after the hearing, uh, I was approached uh, through letters, through emails. Well, emails weren't so prevalent then. Uh, but since uh, then, emails. Uh, through uh, what telegrams actually, which were present at the time, uh, for, with uh, I was approached by people with who who wanted to share their experiences of abusive behavior, and there was a whole range of that behavior. There was bullying in school. There was sexual harassment and assault in, in, um, among, among elementary students. And um, there was sexual harassment and assault on college campuses. Uh, there was uh, intimate partner violence stories that came to me, stories of incest. You know, I sort of cap it all off. Uh, very shortly after the hearing, I, I had a call from uh, a man, you know, I'd expected to hear from women talking about sexual harassment, but I this, did not expect this call. It was a call from a man who said that he had been an incest victim and that he had attempted to tell his parents that he was being abused, but they dismissed him. Uh, they accused him of making it up. Um, and, and he said when he watched the hearing, that the senators reminded him of his family members who had abandoned him, basically, um, and and left him to deal with his 
problem of being violated on his own and um, taken the side of the person who had abused him. And he said to me, you've opened a whole can of worms. So rather than seeing this problem as a problem of sexual harassment, I'm seeing it through the eyes of all of the victims and survivors who I have, have, uh, have heard from and whose stories I try to share as many as possible as I can in, in this book. Because for me, the problem is bigger than me. It's bigger than sexual harassment. It's bigger than 1991. Mm -hmm. And it is much more urgent than what we recognize uh, and our leaders recognize in this country. Mm -hmm. I'm talking with Anita Hill. She's a professor of social policy, law, and women's and gender studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. How far do you think we've come in the last 30 years in terms of awareness of sexual harassment and gender violence? How far do you think we still have to go? And what does it signal to you that we had both the Me Too movement gain traction around the same time that President Donald Trump, who bragged about sexually assaulting women, was elected? Uh, we especially want to hear from you if you remember the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991 and Anita Hill's testimony, uh, talk about how you look back on that moment and how you think it informs the things that we're discussing and dealing with today. Uh, how did you and the people around you react to the things that were being revealed at that time? And how big of a deal was that for your own awareness of sexual harassment then and now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Professor Hill, before we, get to, before we get to callers, I want to talk about uh, President Joe Biden, who was was a U.S. senator and was, in fact, the chair of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. He was the person who ran the hearings at which you testified. Uh, he's been criticized for a really long time for the way he handled that situation. Uh, what was it that you believe he did wrong in that role? And what did that mean for you personally? Well, my feeling was that he, he allowed... Uh, he, he allowed unsupported uh, statements by some senators just to go unchallenged. Um, but most importantly, I think there were three witnesses who had their own accounts of in inappropriate behavior uh, by Clarence Thomas who were not allowed to testify in the public hearing. Uh, and that, I think, is probably the most egregious uh, uh, failure on his part. Uh, the fact that there were other people who could corroborate, not my experience, but their own experience, that was similar, experiences that were similar to mine, and that they were 
you know, they were uh, allowed to put statements in the written record, but were not allowed to be seen and heard by the American public, a public that was glued to the television set to try to get some clarity on these issues. And that, that clarity was denied in terms of their testimony. Um, but I think one has to go through the whole hearing to understand that uh, from the intake to the investigation to the outcome in the voting um, uh, to, to move the nomination forward, there were flaws. Mm. And but but let me, can I just add though that you know but at this moment uh, Joe Biden is president. Um, he was elected president of, of this country. Um, what I want people to take away from this is that we need leaders, and that includes Joe Biden, to take this issue, issue seriously, to commit and acknowledge uh, the depth of the problem. And that's why I, I wanted to really spell out in sort of long form all of the issues that our, our country is facing in terms of gender violence. I wanted it to be spelled out because only when you see the whole of the issue do you see the enormity of it. And then you can begin to understand why it is the responsibility of the leader of this country to acknowledge it, commit resources to it, and to begin to work at every level in the government to address it. We already know that there's a problem throughout our government, not only our government offices and workers, uh, because that information has been collected. We know specifically that two Supreme Court justices have been accused. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that numerous uh, other officials, congressmen and, and senators over the years have been accused and with very limited success in terms of getting to the bottom of it because the processes have failed to actually reveal much about what has gone on. Um, and we know tragically that the military year after year, you hear in some uh, branch of the military that sexual harassment and assault and, and even murders related to those activities uh, are going on in the military. So how do we, how do we address that? Um, so uh, my, my book suggested we address it through the president. And, and that is why the book is also a plea to uh, now President Biden. Mm. We should do just a little reclamation, I guess, uh, of of the president's uh, reputation. Uh, Carmen on Twitter asked whether you ever received an apology from anyone on that hearing community, particularly its leader, Joe Biden. You did. In 2019, you got a call from Joe Biden. I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about what he said. Well, the, the gist of what he said was that he was very sorry that his management of the hearing caused me harm, uh, which it did. You know, there were threats to my life, threats to my family, threats to my friends, friends lost jobs. There, were, there was harm. Um, and I appreciated the apology to me, 
But what I failed to hear in his apology was an acknowledgement of how many people, not only victims and survivors who want justice and who want to be heard, but to many people who saw that hearing, witnessed that hearing, saw it as a huge disappointment as, as a, a, that, that, that impacted their trust in our country and our country's willingness to take on this problem and to address it appropriately and to hear from victims and, uh, of, of the youth. And, and so that is what I, I think it, the job of the president to rectify. And not just Joe Biden, but every president that comes along owns this problem because of the high level of its prevalence and the enormous harm that it's causing throughout our institutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, with Anita Hill. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you remember of uh, Professor Hill's appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991 during the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, tell us what you think uh, we've learned over that 30 years. How are things different today than they were then? How much more work do we have to do? You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Anita Hill. She's a professor of social policy, law, and women's and gender studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. She is also, of course, uh, someone who testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991 as it was considering the nomination of then-Judge uh, Clarence Thomas to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, she revealed uh, interactions with uh, Judge Thomas uh, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, were surprising and shocking, I think, to many people. Uh, they were about uh, sexual harassment that uh, he had committed against her, uh, about a climate of sexual harassment that she had experienced uh, uh, working with him, uh, they did not derail his confirmation, but they did ignite a national conversation that has been going on for 30 years. The question now is, how different are things? How differently are we managing uh, sexual harassment and gender violence? Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Do you remember that testimony 30 years ago? What do you think of it? What did you think of it then? What do you think of it now? What do you think of what we've learned in the 30 years since and how different things are? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter 
the comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Gretchen in Gross Point. Gretchen, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Um, I was just thinking that I was about to start my professional career. I was just about to graduate from college when all of this was on the TV, and I you know, had kind of heard about sexual harassment before, but not realized that, you know, it, it was so prevalent. And I think that that is what has really changed, is that our awareness of it, you know, we've come miles in that respect for how, you know, far we've come. But as far as it changing or people stopping, I, I think we've maybe come afoot. Mm-hmm. So I, I really don't think that, you know, that it has changed only that people are more aware of it. Hmm. You know, that's an interesting, mm-hmm. it's an interesting observation, Gretchen. Uh, Professor Hill, before I ask you to respond, I want to tell you just a bit about uh, my perspective on this. So in 1991, I was 20 years old. I was a college senior. Uh, and I remember very vividly, um, you know, watching um, watching the hearings and uh, and taking in what was what was going on but I, had, I also remember uh, being kind of shocked by the issue and not understanding I think the the broader context of it and and things like that fast forward to um, uh, the recent testimony that Christine Blasey Ford gave uh, in front of the same committee and uh, I was in the car with my son uh, while we were listening to that. He was 15 at the time. And I was really struck by how much more he knew and understood about what was transpiring during that hearing and what she was talking about uh, and the context that it fit in than I was as a 20-year-old back in uh, back in 1991. And in some ways, I suppose, that goes to Gretchen's comment that it's awareness that has changed fundamentally between 1991 and and now. I wonder if you watched those hearings, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, uh, and drew the same kind of conclusion. Yes, as a matter of fact, and I think Gretchen is absolutely right. Awareness has increased. It began actually in 1991 when we had a public conversation about uh, of sexual harassment and 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 your twenty year old self who were was able to hear and understand those those conversations, um, it, it it increased over the years through uh, in large part I think to movements on college campuses and researchers uh, a woman named Louise Fitzgerald who was a pioneer in the research on this did a tremendous amount of work to to raise awareness uh, as as part of her research in in on colleges and and impacting uh, te- teaching throughout the country. Um, in addition, of course, there were movements like the Me Too movement, uh, but there were also advocacy groups that have grown up to address. Uh, the needs uh, of survivors uh, and victims. So we're we're having a much more open, uh, open conversation about the behavior, but there are two things that are missing uh, in terms of what we need to do to make change. Um, one is to address the cultural myths that continue, hmm. that the problem isn't that bad. 
Uh, that was a phrase that Arlen Specter, Senator Arlen Specter, used over and again in, in questioning me and talking about my experience that it wasn't so bad because uh, I didn't say that he had touched me. Um, or uh, or it wasn't so bad because, you know, talking about porn and, and ongoing conversations about porn, what in the workplace, as he said, was, you know, that's just stuff people do. Um, and so we hear these kinds of messages over and over again. Even we tell our children them that we tell them things aren't so bad or they should, shouldn't complain about it or that in, in or in worst case scenario that, you know, maybe they're doing something to cause it to happen. So those are the cultural things that still exist that I still hear. I heard, um, I got an email recently about a, a, a girl who had been punished when she reported sexual assault. This was an elementary school mm. girl who's had a recess taken away from her because she reported what would be a, a sexual assault on her and was told that she was inappropriate. And so she had a recess taken. So these are the cultural things that need to be fixed. We, the way we talk and, and think uh, about victimhood and, and the uh, victim, victim blaming and denial and dismissiveness that we engage in many times inadvertently, mm. but still it's harmful to both the victim as well as their abuser who believes that that behavior become, is normalized. And so they continue to do it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there are the, the processes. Just like the Senate hearing uh, was, uh, was a flawed process, there are flawed processes going on to address it all around the country. Um, and just, you know, I've heard the stories from just about every quarter. Um, they're much more prevalent now. All you have to do is think about the testimony of those Olympic gymnast uh, last month, um, and now the the, the the women's soccer, the stories that are coming out of women's soccer uh, about abuse that was allowed to go on because the processes weren't there to eliminate it. So that's what we have to work on. We've got to work on the culture that supports it and the processes that have that uh, culture of silencing and denial built into yeah. So we've only got about a minute left, but I do want to interject another question from a caller. Nick in Detroit says both Kavanaugh and Thomas lied under oath. Why no action to censor them or remove them? Uh, you're someone who is, you know, a, a very close watcher of the court and very familiar with that process. Uh, I, again, I've got just a minute left, but I'm curious, Professor Hill, what you think about what consequences maybe they should have faced? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on the process of removal from the court, mm -hmm. but my understanding is that uh, removal uh, of a Supreme Court justice uh, is very, is, is very limited range uh, that can be applied or, uh, or a process that can be applied to remove a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and I don't know what that is. And there are experts and, mm -hmm. and they, can better inform you than I can. But what I, I, I want people to understand is that, yes, those things are important. And, and I think that would restore more confidence in the court. Mm. Um, but there are other things that we can do in, our, in the institutions in which we exist every day. 
where this is an everyday problem. Mm-hmm. And there's new energy behind doing that. Um, and so I think now is the time, and I hope people feel engaged and hopeful that we can make a difference. Yeah. Okay, uh, Anita Hill, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about your new book and all of this history. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Detroit mayoral candidate Anthony Adams is going to join the program to talk about his challenge to incumbent mayor Mike Duggan. We'll also hear from historian and author Keisha Blaine on her upcoming book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America.